Welcome to Game of Life. Game of Life. With Dan and Harmon. Okay. There's only you here. And there's only me here today. <laughs> this is Harman's a new invisible. this is a new iteration of the podcast because Harmon has taken some time off for the next yeah. few months. Yeah. So instead of pausing the podcast where I'm yeah. going full steam ahead. Man, I'm still fixated on <laughs> Iteration. I'm like, I have to Google that word. <laughs> this is a new new word for me. <laughs> Using big words. Um, iteration, so like a new path. Maybe. Yeah, this is a new chapter of the, new of the chapter. podcast. Okay, cool. Sorry, English is like my fifth language. Uh, fourth, actually. Is it really yeah, your fourth? fourth? Yeah. So how many languages do you speak? Uh, so my dad's language is Tigrinya. So I, I learned that from my dad. My mom's language is Amharic. So I learned that from my mom. Mm-hmm. And then I was born in Sudan, so I learned Arabic and then coming to Australia, English. So that's four. Four, four yeah. languages. And you know how many of them I use on a daily? One. One. <laughs> <laughs> Just English. So does your family, we're here with Joe White, mm. comedian. But Joe oh, White is not so. your actual name. No, it's not. What is your yeah, actual it, name? You know, it blows my mind <laughs> when people think it's actually my real name, right? And they come up to me and they're like, hey, they'd watch a comedy set, like a 15-minute set, and then afterwards they'll come up. And this is almost all the time. And they'll go, hey, um, you didn't do any jokes about, uh, you know. And I, went, and I go, what do you mean about what? But like, you know, your name, Joe White. And I go, and knowing me, like, I'm like, oh, I've done it. I've just got two hours of material that you haven't heard and you only heard 15 minutes. And in that part, I didn't have anything about my name, but I've got the material. But I don't tell them that. I just watch it play out. And they're like, you know, you're, because, you know, you're not, um, (laughs) you know. And then they'll look around and they'll just be like, because, you know, you're you're not white. And I go, I had no idea. (laughs) Thanks for this moment of truth. Um, But, but yeah, Joe White's not my real name. My real name is uh, Talahun Heilu. Yeah, Joe White is just a name I use to trick white people. But um, it's working so far. So you were born in Sudan? Yeah, born in a refugee camp in Sudan. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, left the refugee camp. Uh, when I was probably uh, maybe about five, no, probably about five, six years old, around that age. Yeah. And we left the refugee camp and we went to the capital city of Sudan, uh, which was uh, which is Khartoum. And then, can you say Khartoum? No way. <laughs> so should, this is this being recorded for prosperity. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to embarrass myself. Mate, Australians struggle with words like Khartoum. Talahun. They can't say Talahun. They just call me telephone. Just so you know. <laughs> well, we shorten words. Yeah. Easy, even easy to say words we shorten. Mm. And so it's like uh, we, uh, we went to Khartoum um, and then up until the age of 11, we went to Khartoum. And then, uh, yeah, we left Khartoum. We got lucky. We got a humanitarian visa, uh, refugee visa to travel to Australia. And uh, we knew that was the moment of truth for us that was the moment our life changed mm. for the best until we got to the airport and they said you're in perth and we, went, nah. <laughs> we so, looked around we're like we want to go back so how old were you then five or six uh i was 11 when i came oh, 11 when you came yeah, to australia 11 yeah right um and i say it was it was a moment of truth for us because before we migrated as refugees um so when i was uh, at the refugee camp around the age of uh probably five or so uh, that's when my dad left the family. So he became alcoholic, um, abusive. Uh, and then, it, you know, 
he, he didn't mm. stay. The cops came and they took him and I haven't seen him since. Uh, and in that moment, our whole life changed because now there was no man in the house yeah. that was to go out and, you know, work and bring money and help my mom raise six kids. So now mom had to go from a stay-at-home mom to having to get a job and try to look after six kids while feeding us in Sudan, which is yeah. a population where half of the population is living under poverty. If you if you look into the uh, United Nations uh, survey, you'll see that half of the population of Sudan lives under poverty. So imagine trying to go out and hustle uh, yeah. as a woman in that environment. Yeah, especially course. you know under Sharia law, where if you don't have a man next to you, or if you're not married, or if you're seen to just have kids and no husband around, then you, you know it's really frowned upon. And so she had to fight all of that and yeah. try to provide, and it was struggle. And one struggle led to another, and we left. We sold everything we had in the refugee camp, and we moved to the capital city of Khartoum, thinking our life was going to be better there. But then we ended up being homeless and uh, yeah, we, well over a year, we lived on the street and ate out of bins to survive. And, you know, we, I remember going through bins to try and find food. I remember begging on the streets to try and find, not just me, but all my siblings and my mom. And so that's why I say when, you know, we got the humanitarian visa to leave, yeah. the moment of truth for us, yes. you know, the beginning of something amazing. Yeah. We didn't know what it was, but we're like, it's going to be way better than being homeless. Yeah, of course. Like... Uh, that was uh, that's why I said moment of truth mm. arriving in Australia, because you were homeless for over a year. Mm. Does that always play on the back of your mind today? Are you a bit more um, conscientious when you spend money, or are you a bit more aggressive when you try and find work or hustle <laughs> because you may be homeless again? Be homeless again. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's the opposite. Yeah, right. It's the opposite. I think once you've had it worse and now you're in an environment where you know economically you're in a position where there is work available, uh, there is resources and, yeah. uh, you know, in the in the form of um, centers that can help you. Like if you don't have a job and you want a job, you can ask your mates. But outside yeah. of that, you can go to centers where they help people find jobs. You have a safety net. Yeah, you have, yeah. and you've got Centrelink and all this stuff. This is stuff we didn't have access to yeah. uh, growing up in Sudan. And so now that we're here in this environment, you know, we know uh, like that we, we, it's abundance of uh, resources available to us. So we don't yeah. panic that we're going to go back to being the way we were, yeah. you know. So once you've had it very low, it's only up from yes, here. Yes. So, you know, we... We, in fact, we utilize the resources we have here and the opportunities. And so we work harder because we know the opportunity, the advantage is yeah. there to try and make something of ourselves and, and not just let all the struggle go to waste. You know, we overcame such a big thing. We don't want to come here and just do nothing and be lazy. So we want to utilize the resources and make something of it mm. and maybe even help others that are in our position. Taking full advantage. Taking full advantage, yeah. yeah. So not operating from yeah. a place of fear that you'll be homeless again, yeah. but operating from a place of, oh, my God, I can't believe I've got all these resources. Yeah. Let's see, like, what I can create here. I think your regular Australian wouldn't have that sort of mentality. They, I think, and me, I take things for granted yeah. like that because I didn't, you know, live the way you did. But yeah. you have a whole different perspective when it comes to, you know, living here in Australia. Yeah, look, the more people I speak to, I find out, you know, my story or our, my family story is not just 
um, like a rare thing. It, it's it, there's yeah. so, millions of people out there with the same story. You know, they yeah. migrate here as refugees, yeah. and you look at them, and they might work at Macca's or doing cleaning job. And so yeah. some people will look at them and go, "Oh, that guy's, you know, went through his primary high school, didn't go to university, and now he's doing a cleaning job." No shame on it. But mm. if you know, it, my mom works as a cleaner, and if you really got to know her and understand her story. You know, you know that's a single mom of six kids. She raised six kids. She lived on the streets. She had other business to survive. Yeah. She she made sure we were safe. We were secure. Uh, you know, she did what she had to do to bring us here. And now her kids are, you know, comedian, registered nurse, doing all these jobs, acting. Uh, you wouldn't see that by just looking at her. But um, you know, when you get to know people, you really get to know their stories. And that's yeah. that's been what I love about this job is talking to people and getting to know their stories. And it's similar to mine. You have a very funny bit about your mum finding out about Centrelink for the first time when she was here in Australia. It just sort of <laughs> blew your mind or you blew like, her mind as well. Mm. Yeah, because, uh, you know, living on the streets and eating out of bins to survive, begging and, you know, there was no there was no government support yeah. that we received when we were there. You know, there was no Centrelink. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we come here and, yeah, we couldn't believe it that there is Centrelink where the government gives you money. And so the story or the bit is uh, where we go to Centrelink and the lady tells us, yeah, we're going to give her, you know, $600, I say, um, for the kids. Yeah. And and mom couldn't believe it. And she's like, what is this money for? And the lady goes, and I was translating and my English wasn't good. And the lady goes, oh, it's for the kids. I'm like, mom, it's for us. <laughs> and then my mom gets angry and yes. says, no, the no, children are not for sale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we run home and, you know, I was like, oh, thanks for not selling us, mom. <laughs> you know, so that's, and, and then the bit continues on yeah. and, you know, and uh, it's a great bit. And it's a bit that's inspired from our, our real life. Mm. You know, like I said, we had nothing. There was no government money coming in to help us out when we were there. We come here and they're like, yeah, here's some money. Yes. And and it's true. Like, you know, some teachers in some parts of Africa, $100 a month is what they get. Yeah. You know? So here to get 600 plus from Centrelink, that's for doing nothing, yes. just for registering and saying, yeah, I'm here, I'm new. I'm going to go out there, look for work. But for now, I need your help. And they're like, here's yeah. some money. You know, obviously, you're going to yeah. pay it back later on in tax yes. and stuff. But yeah. it's just still mind-blowing that we have a system like that that helps. I feel... So I feel like such an asshole because I've been through periods. Yeah, yeah. I've been through periods of my life in between work, but I sort of, um, you know, turn my nose up a little bit at Centrelink because mm. I'm very stubborn. Like I, I'm too proud to to go to Centrelink to ask for the support because yeah. I'm like, well, I've got a bit of money to last me so long, so I don't want to. I'm a bit reluctant to go to Centrelink in between. Yeah, jobs, and you should be if you have money. If yeah. you know you don't need Centrelink's help and you can yes. make it work, then yeah, you should feel like a little bit dirty. You should be like, no, <laughs> and you know why you feel a little bit dirty? It's because you know you can do better. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and Centrelink is, uh, to my view, anyways, Centrelink is there for the vulnerable yes. and the people who need that little help before they can help themselves. You know, I think that's what it's there. Now, don't get me wrong. I know there's people that rot the system, mm. right? You see them. They don't yeah, want to get a job. They're on Centrelink yeah. and. You know, they say, oh, mate, I've tried, but you just can't get the job. But not everyone's like that. And I think we shouldn't paint everyone with that same brush. Yeah. You know, there are people like my mom, single mom, six kids, new to Australia on Centrelink. That was a lifeline for us to keep us going until we were able to get a job and yeah. understand the way of living here and, you know, learning to to transition into the Australian way of life. Like Centrelink was a giant help. 
you know. Now we're, we're working tax and all that stuff and, yeah, they get their money back from you somehow, yeah. some way. So, so walk me through your first week here in Australia. What was that mm. like? Oh, mate. <laughs> was it overwhelming? Oh, overwhelming. <laughs> I, I was just like, why is there so many white people around me? This is amazing. Am I, am I in a good place right now? Is this what this means? You know, because like coming from where we come from, when we saw one white person, the whole town will just go and find out what's going on. Is this person here with the United Nation? Like, it, it, you know, can we can we get money or what's going on? Are they rich? Because that's how it's sold to us. You know, when we see white, we see power, we yeah. see wealth, you know. Like, we didn't understand anything. That's what we just saw coming from where we come from. Yeah. So when first week here and you saw all these white people, you just went, oh, my God, this is... This is the factory. This is where they make them. You know, <laughs> so many of them, right? And so it was mind blowing. But I tell you this: coming from where we came from, having nothing, the thing that blew my mind away the moment I knew that this was it, we were now considered rich. Yeah, we were now going to have a better life. Is when we got to our accommodation and they said, "This is your house." This is where you'll be staying. And it wasn't because of the house. We walked in and on the dining table, I saw a ball of apple. And I, and I said, is that ball of apple ours? They went, this whole place is yours. <laughs> and I went, we're rich. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because when I was, when we were homeless, you know, I'd always walk past this cart and this guy sold apples, but he sold them in um, like individually and, I just, I could never, they were like 75 cents or yeah. I could never afford it. You couldn't imagine being able to afford an apple. And we were so hungry, we'd walk past, we'll see it and we'll go one day, you know, I'll be like one day, I'll be able to get some of that apple, you know. <laughs> and then the moment they showed us a ball of apple and they said, this is all yours. I just ran, grabbed this ball of <laughs> apple and just ran to the rooms. All my siblings chased me and I started dividing it going, okay, one apple for you, <laughs> one apple, two for me, one for you, found it. You know? And it was just, it was mind blowing. Wow. Something so simple, yeah. but it was a representation of, of the new life we were starting. You know, Was it hard to make friends at the beginning? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. It was hard. To, it's hard to make friends if uh, if you can't speak the language. How are yeah. you going to communicate, yeah. you know? So a lot of people just went, oh, hi, what's your name? And I just stared at them. Mm. And I was yeah. a very tiny kid, you know, so I just stared at them going, why are they talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And yeah. some people, and very rarely, some people like my neighbor, um, she was lovely. She was probably my first friend. My neighbor, um, she would say, hi, what, what's your name? And I'll just stare at her and, and she'll go, do you want to ride the bike? And she'll bring the bike and she'll go jump on bike, ride, and she'll show me, you want a skateboard? And she'll get on the skateboard and she'll show me what to do and I'll just nod or say no. you know. So some people went above and beyond to speak to you in English, yeah. but then when the moment, the moment you didn't reply back, they just went, ah, this person's English is probably not good. Yeah. I'm not going to point and laugh and shame them. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to try to find other ways to communicate yes. with them. And so they used their skateboard, they, you know, body yeah. language, smiled. Yes. And that's how you became mates with someone, you know. Yeah. In that vulnerable moment, they were there to just use these skills to try and communicate and let you know it's okay. And yeah, you know, you're here now, but you're not always going to be there. So that was beautiful. So my, my neighbor was the first friend. And then um, 
you know, uh, at school, primary school, didn't really make that many friends. Uh, if you can't speak English, kids, you know, tend to bully you and stuff like that. So I got bullied in primary school. Um, but lucky for me, my siblings were in the same school. So yeah. my twin sister was there, my younger sister. And when I was getting bullied, I told them. And then they went up to the bullies and would non-English, they're like, don't you dare in our language. Yeah. Don't you dare touch our brother. Because <laughs> I was tiny. They were taller yeah. than me. And so they stood up for me. And, you know, so some kids go above and beyond and others are just shits. <laughs> <laughs> how, how was your mum during this whole sort of period in Australia? Um, I think for her... This is where a lot of my comedy comes, you know, watching my mom trying to figure out life in Australia, you know. For us, we picked it up quite quick because every day we were out there mingling whether we had a choice or not through primary school sports yeah. and, you know, our English was getting much better and we sort of getting to know the culture a bit. Uh, where mom, you know, and this is a lot of the adults, when they come here from overseas, their English is not good and they find it hard to get along with other people because they just don't know how to communicate. Yeah. And so they're naturally drawn to their community, yeah. you know, and so they speak their native tongue, um, they do their cultural stuff. Uh, this is great because it helped us, you know, upkeep our Ethiopian route yes. and not forget, right, Th through mum. But the problem for mum was she's not experiencing any Australian culture, her English is not getting better. And so when she goes out to find work, that gets a bit challenging. Uh, when people behave in certain ways, she doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, and so our job now, we went from being the kids in, in yeah. Sudan on the streets that relied yeah. everything on, on mum to now being the people or the kids that have to guide her now and make sure she's okay. Yeah. And because of everything she's gone through and I've witnessed it, I make sure she's always looked after and, you know, I go above and beyond to make sure my mom's okay. Um, and, you know, translating for her. That was that was so hard, you know, to get a job, but to go out there and use the English language. I remember we uh, she went shopping and I went with her and uh, she bought all these groceries and she wanted a bag, but she didn't know how to ask for a bag. So mm. she'll do this thing where she will construct an English language and then one word will be in the language <laughs> we spoke and that yeah. was Arabic, right? And she'll use that one word and she'll just confuse everyone. So she bought all these groceries and she goes to the guy, now I buy, now I have kiss. Because in Arabic, kiss is plastic bag. Yeah, right. Where in English, you know, it's not plastic bag. Yeah. And the guy was like, no, no kiss. And she's like, yes, I want kiss. No, no, no kiss. And then uh, I explained what she meant and she was so embarrassed that you know, we grabbed everything and we ran home. You know, just little yeah. things like that. Yeah. So it was, it was very challenging but witnessing it, being there to help her through it, using comedy to sort of uh, not um, using comedy to soften the blow of whatever is happening. Yeah. That was a great way to uh, to grow up. <laughs> so where does comedy come in then? How, how do you find comedy? Because, I mean, you're not, f presumably, you're not finding comedy in Sudan. No. <laughs> so no. where does comedy come into the equation when you're here in Australia? Um, it, well, in Sudan, you know, I did, we did comedy, but not, uh, we didn't do it like because we were trying to be comedians. Mm. We just used comedy or joking as a form of therapy. Yes. You know, yeah. as a form of uh, overcoming uh, difficult situations. You know, the best way to overcome something is it's to take the mickey out yeah. of it. You know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. To take the piss out of it eventually yes. doesn't have a hold on you anymore because yeah. you're laughing at it, you know. Yeah. 
And so I did that a lot back in Sudan, but I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. You know, um, but some of what happened there in Sudan does impact us here. And, uh, you know, I use a lot of that as motivation for my comedy. And so when I do, um, when something happens here now, like when we're sitting in the couch and we're watching telly growing up and something happens, uh, like I'll make jokes about it and the whole family will make joke, will start joking. And sometimes we turn the TV off and we just start teasing each other to see who's the funniest. Yeah. No one wanted to tease me because, you know, I just, I was just made, like I knew how to tease people. Yeah. And so I would always select which sibling to make fun of because no one wanted to go up against me. Yeah. And I'd always choose my older brother. It was just easy to make fun of, right? And he would get angry and he would chase me. And, I, you know, so like comedy and humor, we used it in our family as therapy to overcome all the tough situations yeah. in our life. And my mom used to say, one day you're going to be on TV and making people laugh. She used to actually say that. And uh, when I started doing comedy here, you know, it was something my family always knew I was going to, but we didn't know how yeah. or when, or if there was even such a thing. Yeah. Like we watched Kevin Hart, Trevor Noah, all yeah. that on TV, but that's just on TV, you know, Eddie yeah. Murphy, all that. But to actually go and do it, yeah, it was mind blowing. And you probably, when you're watching stand-up comedians like Kevin Hart, etc., you don't realize what they're doing is the def is stand-up comedy. You sort of, I guess, you realize that as you as you progress. Yeah. You think they just ended up there, but yeah. they all went through. Exactly. They're always there doing doing that thing on stage. You don't mm. realise that there's a whole sort of community of, of you know, open mics, yeah. for example. Yeah. And, you know, like um, I think that I started comedy at 29. I'm 37 now. I know I don't look you at You don't that. look at it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, mate. I'll good. give you a hundred bucks. You look better on. than me. <laughs> How old are you? 33. Ah, oh, 33? Yeah, 33. Dude, I thought you were like. 25. Oh. <laughs> I want to come back and do this <laughs> podcast again, you know. Um, but I think the beauty of starting comedy at a later age for me anyways is, you know, I've got a lot to draw from, mm -hmm. you know, especially what happened in of Africa course. as yeah. refugees and transitioning into the life, uh, the Australian way of life. There's a lot to draw from. Now, when I draw from stuff that happened in Africa, a lot of that is dark. And so I have to find a way to make it funny. So I tell people the, the full story. And then uh, I change the punchline, you know, to try and make it funny. But I draw, I draw from that experience, you know. When I say a lot of it is dark, it's like my dad left the family when I was uh, five. You know, there's nothing funny about that. My dad is an alcoholic. There's nothing funny about that. Living on the streets, in and out of business, survive. So it's like coming here uh, when I do the bit like comparing Centrelink to what we had over there uh, when we didn't have it. Now that we have it, no, the children are not for sale. Like... This is all punchline yeah. to try and make it funny. But the yeah. truth is, yeah, we grew up in a place where we didn't have anything like that. Yeah. It's so my, I grew up with my um, parents. My, my, my mother and my stepdad were always screaming at each other. Um, and on the occasions that it turned violent, my mother once put her hand through a glass door, Damn. so we had to rush her to emergency because she had strong. she had cut a, a vein or something in her wrist. So yeah. we had to rush her to um, emergency. And mm. there was another point where my mother, as she was prone to do, was to leave in the middle of the night after a big argument and take us kids with her to a hotel. Mm. And she was 
going down the driveway one night and my dad decided to jump on top of the car. Dude, your dad is crazy <laughs> as mine. Yeah. So, but... Look at us laughing about yeah, our crazy dads. But, but, but there's nothing in comparison to... Um, like my dad chasing my mum around with a sword mm. like like yours did. Yeah, yeah. My that was uh yeah, my dad was crazy. The last night we saw my dad, um, you know, it was like three AM in the morning. He came home drunk and uh we heard screams and we woke up because we all slept in this big hut and we had beds in the hut and we it was just there was no bedroom, no toilets or toilet, you had to go outside yeah. of the hut, right? And yeah, we had all these noises and screams and we woke up and it was mom and dad was trying to hit her with a sword that he had. Uh, and we all woke up and he goes, go back to bed. And we all shat our pants and went back to bed, right? Well, yeah. played to be, a, like we played dead. Except for my older brother where, you know, he snuck, uh, he snuck out of the bed, commando crawled outside of the house, went up to the neighbors and notified them and they called the cops, uh, the refugee camp police, yeah. and they kicked, you know, the hut door open. And yeah, that they pulled the guns out on dad and got his wallet, had a look. And I remember this, we're all around mum and they go, who's this man? And she's like, oh, he's their dad. And they go, do you want him? She goes, no, he's hurting us. And I never saw him again. And it's I'm just yeah, crazy. 37, I never saw him again. Would, then, you, would you ever want to see him? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So yeah. I, I got plans and I'm working on it yeah. and I'm hoping this year or, you know, I, I get to go back to Ethiopia yeah. and see him because my mom went back after like 30 years. Uh, been away from Ethiopia. She went back and she found dad and he's got a new family there, apparently still an alcoholic. But, um, you know, I think um, I want to go and have a chat and I want to forgive him and I want to move on. And uh, it's not because, you know, what he did was right or any of that stuff. It's I think when you forgive someone, it sort of releases whatever hold they may or that situation yes. may have on you, you know? Yeah. Like we create, cre yeah. our creativity comes out of us and you just, you yes. never know that part of your brain where the gold is at, where it's it's maybe at the moment covered by that situation you experienced that you never addressed. Yeah. And so when you're going to address it and you forgive and you let go, maybe the gold will start to flow. Yeah. You know, and your life will change for the better and you can change others' life for the better. So that gold has been blocked by this trauma. And so I think going there, seeing him and forgiving him and moving on, that's going to it's going to release me that's a really nice way of putting it yeah and i think that comes with yeah. uh, i guess maturity you know as a young man you're yeah. like walking around like a chip on your shoulder going my dad's a scum <laughs> hate him you know what my dad used to do yeah. he's this is how my dad this is how crazy he is he used to give us money yeah. this is when i was like uh, yeah when i was around the 5 or under he used to give me money and he goes do you want this money and i go yeah he goes here take it and I'd go to take it and he would just get his slippers and he'll whack my hand and I'll pull my hand away. Jeez. And he goes, do you want this money? Uh, I go, yeah. He goes, okay, here, take it. And I'll go and get it. He'll whack me again. Just, and he'll go, do you want it? Okay. And I just kept going. And he just kept whacking me. And then eventually he goes, do you want this money? And I go, nope. That's, and he goes, good. That's now, psychotic. And, and the reason why he, he's doing that is because he's teaching us that. When someone goes, come and get this money and they try to lure you into an alleyway to kidnap you or whatever, you go, no, I don't want that right. money. So that's what he was wow. trying to teach me. So he goes, do you want this money? And I go, yeah, and I go for it. Mm. And he whacks me and I, and then eventually I'm like, I don't want it. But the trauma that comes with that yeah. is now when people pay me with checks, I'm like, put it on the table. <laughs> <laughs> I, do. I don't want to get I hit. <laughs> You're going to do what my dad did. Put it on the table. <laughs> when did you start to think about wanting to sort of 
see your dad again. How old were you when you came to that decision? I'll be honest with you. This is only uh, a realization or revelation that I had in the last probably five years. You know, in the last five years, I, uh, you know, I just, I think I came to this conclusion where if I want to be the best version of myself, I need to let go of some stuff, you know. And uh, I needed to have that honest and hard conversation with myself about who I am, what type of man I want to be, you know, what type of dad I want to be. And um, uh, I think, you know, uh, I don't want to pass on any traumas to anyone, you know, whether it's through relationships or kids. I don't want, so I want to address all the traumas in my life. And one of the major ones that I haven't addressed is, you know, my father. And so I want to address that. I want to heal from it. I want to move on. Um, and I want to, you know, be a dad to my future kids that my dad was never to me. But I think for me to truly be a good dad or for me to truly be yeah. a good partner, a good friend, you know, a good member of the society I live yeah. in, I need to just be as as much trauma-free as <laughs> possible. And so I like working on myself and that's one, one of the reasons why. So it's sort of like letting go of that, that part of you. That's still there. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Letting go, you know, yeah. finding a way to heal. Yeah. Um, it's going to be hard, you know. I've never been to Ethiopia, so I'm dealing with a yeah. new environment. Um, and, you know, sometimes I get threats. Don't come to Ethiopia. Well, yeah. You're a dead man. Because I do. I did a joke. I don't know if you heard it about Ethiopian airlines. No, I don't think so. Dude. So my, this is during COVID. Yeah. And my brother got, like, he went to Ethiopia for one month holiday. And I said hey, COVID's now a thing and the international borders are about to close. Why don't you come back? And he goes, oh, no, it'll be all right. You know, I'll just wait it out. I've got enough money for three weeks, four weeks. It'll be that international borders will open again. And so we said, come back, come back. He didn't listen. And then international borders closed and he was stuck for 11 months, right? And we booked him on Ethiopian Airlines to come back and they just kept canceling on him. Uh, He'll be on the way to the airport and they've canceled on him. And then he'd have to go back and find new accommodation. So, you know, he would complain to me and I would complain to my mom. Um, But my mom is a very proud Ethiopian woman, loves Ethiopia. And uh, so I did this joke where I said every time I complained to her, she would always be like, yeah, Ethiopian Airlines, the safety rate is so high. And I said, yeah, that's because 80% of the flights don't take off. right? (laughs) And then I said, the last time an Ethiopian airline I was in a crash was hit by a car. Like... (laughs) It's a funny yeah, joke. Yeah. And that's the thing with Austra- growing up in Australia, my sense of humor is very self-deprecating and taking the piss yes. out of myself. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, Ethiopians, we're very proud people. Yeah. You know, so we don't like to be laughed at ourselves as much as the Australians do. You know, Australians, it's all like, mate, all our shit stinks. We're all equally terrible, right? Yeah. Like, I guess it's because, you know, it was uh, like we've got tall poppy syndrome here in Australia. Yes. Like, Ethiopians, we tend to be very proud, and so it's very hard to laugh on ourselves. So when I when I take the Mickey out of myself, I'm taking the Mickey out of uh, Ethiopian culture, um, and I love it, and I'm very proud to be Ethiopian. But um, some Ethiopians hate that, and you can't, you know, Ethiopian airlines. Ethiopians love Ethiopian airlines, and it's one of the best airliners in Africa, if not the best. Mm. It owns like a hundred percent of other African countries' airliners. Yeah. That's how high end it is. And so I know Ethiopian Airlines, I, I know that 80% of the flights, uh, when I say 80% of the flights don't take off, clearly it's a joke. Yeah. 
you know, I'm not a, a factual engineer or something. Yeah. I'm a comedian yeah. and the platforms I said on were joking. I'm not going on the news pretending to be a serious news anchor and saying that Ethiopian Airlines is terrible. It's a joke. But some people, they're to the point, they get butt hurt to the point where they'll send threats and... Death threats. Death threats, yeah. What's it like getting a death threat? Oh, it's... Do you take, uh, do you like, take turns it you seriously? On. Or like, it, it turns you on, mate. Let me tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like it like dirty getting talk? to the point where Someone's, you're starting to get death threats? <laughs> well, I posted one and it was like, come to Ethiopia and you're a dead man. Yeah. And then I was like, I uh, posted it and I went, oh... Uh, is this a, a threat or a tourist information? You know, like, <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. Uh, and someone goes, yeah, he's threatening you with a good time. I was like, yeah, <laughs> who wants to come? And so I got a few people, they're like, let's go, I'll come with you. How does it get back to people that in Ethiopia that you're making fun of them? Oh, they're all over TikTok. Really? Yeah, my TikTok account has probably the most amount of Ethiopians from uh, all my other accounts. Yeah. So TikTok, uh, Instagram, um, it's fascinating. Like I, I do what I do because I love it and it made me happy and I want to, the impact that it had on me, I want to try to give that to other people. You know, I just want to try to make people happy. Yeah. If you're having a terrible day, I want to make you laugh and, and move on, right? Yeah. I'm not coming on stage to try and offend you, you know, I'm not coming on stage to try and piss you off to the point no. where there's death threats. Like I'm just coming on stage to make yeah. you happy, to make you yeah. laugh. And unfortunately at times there's going to be risk where I offend you, but you know, that best joke that you love, it comes from the same place. It's just sometimes it takes longer to create that gold. Uh, and it's good if people give you the space to grow. And But unfortunately, sometimes it's just like, oh, bloody hate you. You're the worst thing to happy humanity. And then some Ethiopians are like, oh, my God, we have our very own Dave Chappelle. We love you. Come to Ethiopia. And then some are like, you're bloody dead. So it's like, you know, you can't win them all. And I'm yeah. okay with it. How much would you worry um, when you do go back to Ethiopia, Ethiopia when there are death threats out there. Um, I don't worry. No? I don't, no. Yeah. I mean, there, there is some unstable people and you should probably worry. I don't worry, but I think uh, my mom worries for me and, you know, she'll tell me and my partner and, uh, um, you know, my friends, my loved ones, they're like, hey, man, like, I know you don't worry, but, you know, there's some unstable people out there and it's like, I'm not scared of death, man, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think, you know, when it's time to go, it's time to go. Yeah. If it's not time to go, whatever situation happens to you, you recover from it. Yeah. And if you do wake up and you recover, you're like, ah, I guess it's not time to go. Let's let's see how much more I can get out of this fun thing I call life. You yeah. Know? And so it is what it is. But I just, I love stand-up comedy. And, you know, if it wasn't for stand-up comedy, I don't know what I'd be doing, where I'll be. You know, I used to be a banker before. Banker. Yeah. So was, what was your first job here in Australia? Oh, first job. <laughs> I was working as a door-to-door salesman. How'd that go? No, I was a paper boy for six months, throwing newspapers yeah. at people's doors. Yes. And that was terrible. Uh, and then I used to just take these newspapers and put them in the bin. I just, I had enough. <laughs> no, I didn't. I got, get sued for that. Then. Um, and then I was a door-to-door salesman. Um, I remember this one particular time where I knocked on this door, 12 p.m. on a Monday, and you know, the door-to-door sales, they teach you, that for every hundred knock, there is that one knock and that's where the sale is, yeah. right? And so you can't afford to miss a house unless you make sure there's no one home, there's no sale there. So I knocked on this one door and I could hear noises, but you know, no one was opening the door and I went, this could be it. This could be the 100 sale. So I knocked, went around, had a look through the window and I looked into the lounge room and there was a couple having sex. <laughs> 
12 p.m. on a Monday, this couple are going at it, <laughs> right? And I'm at the wind. I could not believe it. So 40 minutes in, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> they saw me and then uh, this guy ran to the door and I was like, and he put on clothes quickly and he ran to the door and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and he, goes, oh, he, he thought I was trying to break in. Yeah. I said, no, sir, I'm, I'm here. Calm down. I said, I'm here on behalf of Telstra. <laughs> Bro, this guy got more upset. <laughs> Bloody Telstra. Everybody hates Telstra. Bloody Telstra. Um, I would have preferred if you were just a perv. I know, right? <laughs> I should have just said, I'm sorry, sir, I'm just a perv. But all right, mate, well, uh, get back into position. <laughs> I, um, that was my first job, really. What, what did you make of the Australian drinking culture? Australians drink a lot. Yeah. Yeah, they just they smash the beers. They drink a lot. Um, at first I tried to keep up and then I was like, yeah, I'm going to tap out. Yeah. So this is how you become an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> and my mom used to worry for us. Like every time we go out, she's like, please don't drink because we you know your dad is alcoholic and you might be alcoholic. I'm like, I'm not going to be like my dad. Like, well, don't drink. I'm like, okay. So, you know, we'll go and have a drink, but we try not to drink too much. Um, we just, it's, it's played such a part, a huge part in our life, alcohol and not a good part to the point where every time we have a drink, we do think of, oh, yeah, this is what our dad got hooked on and our whole life changed, you know, because of this. So we don't, I drink here and there, but I don't really get drunk and stuff. And when I do, it's uh, it's because something amazing yeah. happened and I'm celebrating with my friends, yeah. you know. So what's your limit of how much you can drink at any given time? Uh, I might have, like, you know, a glass or two of red wine on the weekend. Red wine? Uh, not every weekend, yeah. I, I, I used to drink, man, you know, growing up in Australia, you move up. I started with bloody Woodstock cans, you know, those Woodstock yeah, cans, yes. then moved to the Jim Beams, Jack yeah, Daniels, yes. then moved to uh, raspberry drinks, you know, yeah. those uh, raspberry flavored yeah, vodka yeah. drinks? Vod- vodka cruises. Vodka cruises. Yeah, and yeah, then I got teased. Yeah. So I dropped the vodka cruises, <laughs> moved to beer. The first time I had beer, yeah. I was in the club. I just tasted it and I went, these taste like piss. And then they're like, just keep drinking. You'll get familiar with the yeah. taste. And now, yeah, so Corona here and there. So wine and Corona. Would you say you've you've gotten really drunk in the past or just a bit tipsy? Oh, mate, don't get me wrong. I've, I've gotten drunk in the past. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be an angel. Yeah. You know, I grew up in like the ghetto side of Perth, in, yeah. you know, Girawin. And uh, back in my time, it was like the, the roughest time of Girawin where you know, there's gangs, there's uh, party, house parties. I remember going to house parties and the only way you could shut the party down was by cops coming with helicopters and using the lights <laughs> to br- to like shine the light on you to the point yeah. where you're like, oh, it's too bright and you run off. Um, so, yeah, those times, I, you know, I got drunk with mates and but never really to the point where, you know, like, I don't know what I'm doing or I've passed out somewhere in the middle of the road or, you know... Um, I think that's what I love about my mom is no matter what happened, we always had mom in the back of our head yeah. going, if you screw up in this country, yes. I will kill you myself. Yeah. You know? Don't worry about the cops. I will kill you. Uh, because we know she worked so hard to bring us here. Yeah. And so we didn't want to, uh, growing up, a lot of my mates ended up in jail or whatever, right? Where with us, we were so scared that mom was going to kill us. Not the cops. We weren't scared of the yeah. cops. We were so scared of mom that she will belt the crap out of us. 
that we made sure we were well behaved. So I'll go out clubbing and we'll get into some altercation and the cops would come and I'll go, please, sir, don't tell my mom, you know, and he'll go, this kid, this kid's scared of his mom. Let him go. Then, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> He's a good boy. When did you sum up the courage to actually go and perform stand-up comedy for the first time? Um, I was, I was in banking, so I was 29. Uh, I was in banking. I hated banking. Well, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I did it because, you know, in the eyes of society, yeah. that was deemed to be a successful yeah. job. I wasn't just yeah. any banker. I was a private client manager, like a relationship manager. Yeah. And so I looked after the uh, wealthy clients of the bank, which meant, you know, you dressed in suits, which meant, uh, you know, you, could, you drive the bank's car sometimes, you get a company credit card sometimes that you can use to uh, take clients out. Um so my mom, you know, she she loved that. She's like, yeah, my son, he's bank manager. Well, I wasn't a bank manager, <laughs> private client manager, yeah, but yeah. she just heard bank and manager and she would tell everyone, bank manager. Yeah. You don't even yeah. have to ask her. You're my son, bank manager. Yeah, the words bank and manager. Yeah, yeah. that's success. <laughs> bank manager, bank manager. <laughs> and then I started doing comedy. And uh, if you ask her what I do now, she would just go, eh, he's a good boy. You know? <laughs> he's a good boy. Um I was doing the banking. I hated it. And then I went through um, like it's just a rough moment in my life while I was trying to figure out like, you know, what's the purpose of my life? You know, why am I here? Yeah. You know, I've gone, we, we went through so much and it was just now I find myself in this dead end job um, and I was very unhappy, you know. I wasn't very close with my family. Like we, some of them I had a fallout with and I just went, like I made decisions in my life and now I'm in this very unhappy situation. Yeah. You know, what do I want to do in my life? But I can't continue on like this. And so I decided to uh, to take matters into my own hand and um, read self-help books, try to work out, you know, how to find my purpose. Because if you want to find your purpose, people go, I don't know how to find my purpose. I don't know what my purpose is. I'm just going to go to my job, but I bloody hate my job. Yeah. So I'm just going to be this miserable person my whole life. It's yeah. like, okay. There is people, plenty of them that have been in your position and they've yeah. done things, whether it's by accident or they looked on how to do it and done things and then wrote books about it, did videos about it. And you can find all this from the comfort of your own couch if yeah. you truly want to find what your purpose is. And so I said, all right, well, let me look up some people. Let me type in how to find your purpose, how to be happy, you know, what is the meaning of life? And just listen to these people that I don't have access to in real life, yeah. but I've got them online. Yes. And so I just got all this abundant of, you know, information and a lot of it was like, okay, this makes sense. And when it didn't make sense, but this person said it made sense and to just try it, I just said, all right, this doesn't make sense to me, but I'm just going to try it. Yeah. You know, and that was the thing with stand-up comedy. This doesn't make sense to me, but I'm just going to try it. Yeah. And then I tried it and then it was the best thing I've ever done in my whole life. You know, it's like, while I was doing all this self-help book, my sister calls me and she's crying and she's like, I want you to come home. I want to speak to you. I went home to speak to her. She says, everything all right? She's like, look, this is weird, but I went to this psychic lady in the markets. I was just shopping and I saw her shop and I went in and she's like saying all these things to me that just brought me to tears because I'm like, how does she know? And I got scared. And then she said, you know what would be funny if you go and speak to her because you're having all these weird things happen in your life. Let's see where she guides you. And I was at a stage in my life where I was open to anything and everything. Yeah. You know, like it's all up from here because I'm at yes. the bottom right now. Yeah. And yeah. this lady goes, have you done this before? Her name was Annette McGrath. She's on Facebook. 
And she goes, have you done this before? And I said, no. In fact, as an Orthodox Christian, this is a sin. <laughs> and my mom would kill me if she found out I was here. And that's cheeky. She's like, relax. It's going to be okay. <laughs> right? And so I was like, I'm not going to judge. Yeah. That's my old way of life. Yeah. I'm open to anything and everything. Now, this is my new way. Yeah. And she went through the reading and uh, she said, what do you do for work? I said, I'm a banker. And she started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, what's funny? And she goes, I'm so sorry, but that's not your calling. Yeah. And I went, okay, mag- magical lady. In my head, I'm like, okay. But in my head, I'm like, yeah, magical lady, what's my purpose? Yeah. I said, okay, well, in that case, what's my purpose? She goes, she starts looking around and doing funny things. And then she goes, um, she goes, I don't know, I, but I can see you. And honestly, this is what she said to me, right? She goes, I can see you, you're on stage and you're talking to a group of people and the energy is great. Yeah. And I went, what do you mean? And she said, uh, it's like you're performing on stage and there's thousands of people and the energy is great. It's like the high-fiving energy. And I said, uh, no, no. <laughs> and she said, are you a rapper by any chance? And I said, are you stereotyping <laughs> by any chance? And she started laughing, right? Yeah. And I said, no. And she goes, motivational speaker? And I said, no. And she goes, okay, well, I don't know what it is, but I see you on stage. Yeah. Your job is to go away and to find it. Mm. but it's not banking yeah so you can imagine all the motivation i had for banking she just killed it then and there right yeah and i didn't believe her but then i was like then i i started thinking what is it on stage that i did or want to do or did i ever, even ever wanted to do it and this is what happened a month ago before i saw her i was writing jokes to try on stage because my friend said oh you're funny you should go on stage and do comedy you know, I yeah. like Russell Peters. You're funny. You'll be like him. <laughs> and so I told her that I wrote these jokes, but I put them away because I'm like, oh, I'm going to focus in banking and you should see her eyes light up. And she's like, Joe, listen to me. You have to do stand-up comedy. It's your calling. And if you don't do it, you're going to be an old man and regret the yeah. way you've lived your whole life. Yeah. Now, when she said that w- those words to me, here's the thing. As someone who just discovered self-help and was open to anything and everything, part of self-help is, you know, you can't be scared. You have to, uh, you have to be fearless. You have to be courageous and you have to step forward and try everything yeah. and anything to try and find your purpose. That's how you find your purpose. Now, obviously I was, you know, shitting my pants when she's like, go on stage and perform to a room of strangers. And I said, I don't know how to do it. I don't know where to look. And she yeah. said, find it. Go online, look for it. And I went online, looked for it and found like a seven day course. And I went and did the seven day course. And the guy showed me how to get on stage and stuff. And um, I went on stage, five minutes, got like three applause break. It was my first time. And when they were clapping because of this thing that I created, that I shared it with a room full of strangers and these strangers decided, we like that, we're going to laugh and reward you with clap. The validation that I got, I felt seen, I felt heard. And it just, it felt amazing. It was like a hit of this new drug that I've never experienced before. On the way home, I was crying because I'd know, like I, I, I'd known. Yeah. It wasn't just a five minute set. No. It was this new way of life yeah. that just opened up for you me. You found your purpose. My purpose. Yeah. And then I said, from now on, I'm going to just make as many people happy as many people laugh. I think that moment um, when people realize that they're stuck in a dead end job and they're not fulfilling their purpose. A lot of people probably wouldn't go to the effort and, you know, read self-help books yeah. or, you know, try and find that purpose. They'd probably be a bit more, um, 
you know, fine to just stay in the monotony of life because it's comfortable. It's giving mm. them money. It's it's more comfortable not to take risks. That probably happens to quite yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know what they say: comfort is uh, the thief of uh, opportunities and and uh, yeah. drive. And you know when uh, when the when you have no choice, the yeah. person that you become to to make it work it's, it's the it's a beast the person that comes out yes. of you you know that sink or swim situation yeah. where you dive and you know you're about to sink you know your ability to move and swim you end up swimming yeah right and so and i think you got to just believe and 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 really push yourself and i understand some people you know they've got family they've got mortgages they've got bills and it's hard for them to take that risk yeah and you know i understand that but where there's a, a will, there's a way, and you yeah. just you just have to find a way, even if it means doing a podcast at home with the kids running around. Just bring them, hey guys, this is my kids. This yeah, is what I can do for now, you know. <laughs> also, if you don't go down a path that's a bit risky, mm. but if you're fulfilling a purpose, mm. you don't know what you'll find on that road. Yeah, you may open doors that you didn't even know we're there before yeah it's my favorite quote go where there's no path and uh, leave a trail yeah you know and uh that that's that's what i did that's that's what um i wanted to do every time because you know with comedy i had no idea what the path is i had no idea which way to go how to move yeah you know i just did what i thought yeah i needed to do and it's like if you don't know what to do do what you think you would do if you'd known what to do and then you would learn from there and from there, you'll go, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll just go right now, yeah. you know, and then you go right or left. But it's better than just staying still and going, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to stand still. No, do something. Yeah. You're doing what you should be doing right now. Yeah. There's no right or wrong yeah. answer. And it's like a trampoline. Yeah. You just went bounce from one trampoline to the next and the next gets you to the next and the next. And you don't know. And you meet people along the way yeah. and you collab with those people and then you go your own separate ways and then you meet other people and then... You know, from small things, big things grow. Yeah. <laughs> you know that insurance ad? Big things grow. <laughs> Is that the Hester ad? I have Do you mind no if I idea. get some water? Yeah, 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 of yeah. course, yes. Thanks, mate. How long did it take you to um, quit that banking job? Um, look, about uh, probably two years, two and a half years into stand-up comedy, I decided that I was going to go full-time and bought a one-way ticket to Canada. Canada. Yeah. I said, you know what? Within two years, like within the first six months, I'd already written and performed a 45-minute set Yeah. Uh, to like 120 people in my Perth shows. And, you know, and then I did another one in Perth, 260 people. And then I did shows in Adelaide, did shows in Melbourne, uh, around Australia. And then I said, okay, now I'm ready to take it overseas and I'm going to do exactly what I did uh, in Australia. And so I took, um, I said, but for me to do that, for me to go overseas and tour, because what I used to do in Australia is fly to Melbourne, do the show and then catch the next plane yes. back to Perth and yes. go straight to my banking job. Yeah. And people will go, we just saw on your social media and you're, you were in Adelaide. I go, yeah, I just landed this morning <laughs> and now I'm here trying to put through this application, leave me alone, right? <laughs> and so if I was to go overseas, I can't do that. So yeah. I'm like, I got to make a decision. You know, this yeah. is the crossroad. Yeah. You know, I, I've been doing comedy for two years now on the side and it's going great. The feedback's been great. And that, that's on the side. 
Yeah. So what if I was to do this full time, you know? Having no fallback. Having no fallback. So I'm like, what if yeah. I was to go overseas and do what I did in Australia, but the, the, you know, the, the reward will be greater because the population is bigger overseas. And so I had to make a decision. And the decision was to leave banking. Now, when I went to my boss and I handed in my resignation letter, my boss said, are you crazy? You're going to quit your job and you're going to buy a one-way ticket to Canada to do comedy. said, just take a year off and then come back. I said, no, because like what you said. That attachment will still be there. Well, it's a safety bridge. You know what I mean? Like what I loved about uh, self-help, you know, I know people make fun of it, but some of the words in there, if you let it resonate, right, it really helps you. Uh, be courageous and you know and I had to be courageous in that moment not stupid courageous right and I said if I if I just take a year off right I go okay cool I'll take a year off I'll go and try it and if it doesn't work I've got my banking job to come back to so already I've set myself up to fail in this thing that I'm going to go in this quest that I'm going to go and take on because no quest worthy of taking on is easy yeah right you don't grow from easy no. places. There's going to be challenges, yeah. right? There was challenges in Australia, but except now the challenges overseas, it's going to be a magnitude yeah. compared to the challenges here. And what happens when something gets too hard and we're down on our luck, we bloody run back yeah. to our safety net, right? Yes. So if I've got this safety net, I know when I'm in a position of like hardship and yeah. things are not going as well. well. I can always go back to that banking job. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to be like, i got to push on. I have no choice. No. It's not. It's like when they say, burn yeah. the boats. You yeah. know, you can't leave this island. Yeah. We're going to fight, burn the boats. If you lose, then you can't, there's no getting away. Everyone dies or we fight and we win, you know. So there was no going back for me. Yeah. This is now what I've decided to do. So I said, no, I quit banking. I'm not coming back. I'm going to go to Canada. So I bought a one-way ticket, went to Canada and hustled. Yeah. You know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. in the morning, I'll be out on the street putting my own posters up in Montreal trying to do shows, right? Yeah. And the reason being is because I decided that over on that side of the world, they, you know, if they see you putting your own posters, they think you're a nobody and your comedy is not worth seeing. And that's not true. Like my comedy is worth seeing. So I'm like, how do I get yeah. around this? And I didn't have the budget to pay people to put posters on. Yeah. So I'd sneak out of the apartment at 2 a.m. in the morning, put posters around town, Right, I'd do gigs, I'd fly out, I'd get to know people as they come to my show. I had it at Theatre St. Catherine, which is like a prestige venue in Montreal. Right. I remember I took a risk. Yeah. Right. And I get there, um, the Just for Laughs festival is happening. So I had my show on sale just after Just for Laughs. But in this prestige yeah. venue that Just for Laughs uses, the New York Times came in and they did their own review of the shows in there and they picked up one of my shows. Yeah. Wow. And that only happened because yeah. I took a risk, you know, and I went there and I paid and hustled, ended up doing my show. It was amazing. Took pictures, came back with the credits of the New York Post. Yeah. And yeah. That's great. I love Take that. Take risk. Thanks, yeah. man. The, how, um, how were the audiences in Canada um, compared to those of Australia? Um, yeah, they were fine. Yeah. They were fine. But you won't find any audiences like Australian audiences. Australian audiences for me are definitely my favorite to perform to. And I'm not just saying that to kiss ass. <laughs> but I think it's because I my comedy started here. I grew up here. And so I understand the audiences here. Yeah. And because I understand, they somehow have molded me to suit them more so than any other audiences. You know, it's a two to tango relationship stand-up yeah. comedy. If you're a comic who grew up in Melbourne, 
you will know the Melbourne crowd way more than any other crowds in the city, yeah. like in, in Perth or in other cities, right? So Australian audiences are definitely my favorite audiences to perform to. Uh, Canadian, but also because in Australia, like I said, our sense of humor, we take the piss out of ourselves, so that's yeah. easy. Um, Canada audiences tend to be a bit more woke, uh, and so sometimes they're, mm, we're not going to laugh at that. And uh, and that's fine, you know, like People don't need to laugh at every joke that you make. Some jokes, they need to be frowned upon. Yeah. Um, sometimes you need to be booed if your stuff is not good. But just because you got booed or just because something is not funny, it doesn't mean you need to quit. It just means you need to keep creating. You know. Yeah. I went around America as well. I performed you know, around America. American audiences, that was interesting because there was more diversity in the crowd than anywhere in the world. <laughs> you know, Like when I went to America, there was black shows, there was white shows. Yeah. And people go, it's not the bloody 70s, man. What's this black or white business? Well, I went to Harlem and Harlem was like 70 people in the room at Harlem nights and everybody was African-American except maybe for two white people. And I was just like, whoa, I am so going to bomb because I'm used to yeah. white audiences yes. predominantly. You know, yes. Like I perform here at uh, some of these uh, clubs and there's 400 people and there's only one black person and it's a lady at the back by the exit <laughs> ready to run out in case a Pauline Hansen rally breaks out. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm not used yeah. to seeing more than two black people in the audience. Yeah. So when I get to America and there's like, you know, 99% of black, I'm like, I am going to bomb. This is not my audience. And my buddy, my uh, new American buddy, he grabbed me and he goes, have a look around. Every single person here looks like your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, your cousins, they're going to love you. You're going to be all right. And I was like, all right. And I went up there and they were just like, this kid sounds funny, but we like him. And they were laughing and clapping and I was doing all these bits and I was like, this audience is amazing. But it's because of what I grew up, you know, the environment I grew up in, the Australian audiences, there's hardly any black people in the audience, you know. Um, And then it was crazy. And then I went to another neighborhood and I was performing in this high-end club in uh, Manhattan. You know, the the president of this club used to be Frank Sinatra before he died. Yeah, right. Well, it was like I was I was performing. I was following Mike Reese, the creator of The Simpsons. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was just one of those yeah. top-end clubs. I walk in, yeah. and everyone's like suit and dress, <laughs> and everybody's white except yeah. me and one other yeah. one other black yeah. performer. Yeah, right. And the booker goes. Uh, you're going to be all right. Yeah, don't worry about it. I said, mate, this is my audience. <laughs> I grew up in Australia performing to these guys. I'll be fine, you know. And I had to follow Mike Reese and Mike was smashing. Yeah. And then I got up and I started smashing as well. It was just amazing. And we became mates and uh, we stay in touch on Facebook and stuff. And I'm following them on social media, him and his wife, yeah. Denise Reese, and they're traveling. And But it was just it was, it was completely different ends of the spectrum they had the black clubs the white clubs and the audiences there was a lot of hispanic people in the room as well here you hardly get any hispanic people so you're playing to this world audience you're not playing to your australian audience so you grow your material become universal Mm. and that's why i tell comics travel you know yeah does your family come and see you do stand up um my mom yeah my mom's been to a few shows my uh, my siblings have as well my mom is, is funny, man. Like she used to come to shows, but she would heckle because she thinks she's been supportive. <laughs> you know, you're performing and she'd be like, that one is not funny. Do the next one. And you're like, be quiet, mama. I haven't even done the punchline yet. She's like, this is why you should go back to banking. <laughs> it's, is your siblings still here in Australia? 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. Lucky for us, we're all here. You yeah. know. And I say lucky because, like a lot of people, when they when they migrate from uh, from situation that we were at, when they migrate as refugees to here, they usually don't have their all their siblings with them, or um, you know, people die along the way. Uh, so we're very lucky that mom was able to keep all of us together. And that was her thing. She always said, I want to keep my kids together and uh, we're going to we're gonna work hard together. We're going to struggle together, but I promise you we're going to get out of here together. Yeah. Right? And she was able to achieve that. So we all came here together. And, and everyone's very close, I would imagine. We are close. Yeah. We grew up super close. Um, but as you become adults, <laughs> you know, we all have different personalities, mm. different paths. So we stay in touch as much as we can yeah. now, but I wouldn't say we're as close now as adults as we were when we were growing up. That's interesting yeah. because I would, I, from my perspective, I would just assume that because you went through that experience together to get yeah. to Australia, yeah. um, living homeless on the streets of Sudan. Yeah, we had each other. You, ha- you had each other. So you would grow this sort of bond that most families wouldn't have yeah so i would imagine that you'd probably be all very close unlike other oh, mate. other families yeah look yeah. we're close in a way where uh, i th- i think when i said when i said we're not as close growing up it's because you know we're also busy with our life we don't speak on the regular yeah we're all adults now we have our own places yes. we don't live together yeah you know what i mean yeah. so it's only normal that as you become adults yeah. you're not of course you're not staying in touch as much or seeing each other as much yeah but when someone needs help, everyone's one phone call away and we're there, you know, yeah. uh, physically, we're there mentally, financially. We do whatever we can to make sure whoever's mm. going through whatever that they get the help they need, you know. And my mom's done a great job in keeping us together and making sure we fight for each other. And, you know, and that's one thing my mom's done is she's always led with love. Yeah. You know what I mean? She's yeah. never, she was never bitter, revengeful oh, I did this for you and you didn't do this for us. You're, I don't want to speak to you anymore. You're not my son. You know, it's never like that. And we've been in situation where, you know, teenagers, we have tantrums, we fight with her, we tell her she's the worst, we don't love her, she's not our real mom. Yeah. And she'll just go, okay, I'll be here. Yeah. And we're like, what do you mean? And then a week later, we're like, sorry, mom. And she's like, that's okay, my son, come here. It's okay, yeah. you know, we all go through it. And I'm like, man... This woman is definitely going to heaven. <laughs> Don't get me wrong yeah. though. She's not perfect. My mom's not mm. perfect, but she's just the perfect mom for me, you know? I love that. Yeah. Do, do you have close friends in Australia? Um, yeah, yeah. I've got besties, yeah. you know? I've got, I got my friend Opal. He lives in Sri Lankan, lives in Perth. Um, you know, me and Opal, we weren't always uh, like best friends. We were just friends. Mm. But I think... When I went through that rough patch and trying to find out what my purpose is, the meaning of life, obviously you're yeah. in this dark space and, you know, people like Opal, you know, they, they show up for you when uh, when you're feeling uh, too embarrassed to ask for mm. help, you know. Yeah. They show up for you, they're there for you and they just, they hear you. You know, it's like a car crash. You know when you have a car crash yeah. and you're like stunned and you don't know what's going on and then the person opens the door, gets you out, sits you on the curb and they're like, hey man, it's going to be okay, you know. Uh, just relax and you come to your senses and you're like oh okay i know what to do mm. and he was like that for me so i would consider him to be my best friend um i've got like five people man yeah that, that it's I'm funny because i could count on one hand the amount of actual close friends mm. i have like who would actually drive to the airport to pick me up yeah uh, yeah that sort of close friend or you know who would who would have my back no matter no matter what yeah and that's i can so only cool. count those types of people 
on one hand. Mm. And that's a lot. You yeah. Know? Five yeah. is a lot, man. Yeah. Some people don't even have one. Yeah. It's just them, you know, that's just themselves, which is sad, but like it's a, in a way, it's a reflection of the way you lived your life, mm. you know? Yeah. Like I was always there for people. But then when I was like, bam, I was stung and I didn't know what to do and my life was terrible and I was trying to work things out, not everybody was there for me, you know? And it was a handful of people that were there for me and those people weren't even like besties at the time. But then through that situation, I I hold them close to my heart now. And those that weren't there for me that I thought were my friends, those are the ones where I'm not as close, but I keep them at a distance, you know? Like, I don't hate them. Yeah. I understand they had their own stuff going on and that's what they wanted to do. But, like, it, the people that are there for you in your darkest moment, the people that show up again and again and again, those are the people you need to hold close. Of course. Yeah. What would a young Joe make of 37-year-old you now? Jeez. He'd probably be like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> Who the hell do you think you are, man? <laughs> Get back on the streets. <laughs> um, man, I think young Joe would be super proud. Yeah. You know, young Joe would be, uh, would not believe that I'm on stage making people laugh. Um, like I didn't think this life was possible. Not the comedy aspect of things, but just coming to Australia and uh, living the life that we, we, we've, we're living, um, having the opportunities that we have, um, you know, waking up and it's like you got a roof over your head, food in your stomach, you got car to drive, you know, it's like I never thought this was possible because, you know, young Joe, you know, living on the streets at night, like we, we have our backs against the wall and we're going to sleep and, you know, we're a little bit far away from the road because cars drive past and it feels like they're so close. At night, you know, you're exposed to the elements of the weather and, uh, you know, uh, the dangers as well where people try to kidnap us and, you know, we'd wake up and they scream and someone's trying to grab my sister or my yeah. brother and, you know, my mom and all of us were fighting and, you know, mom can't go to sleep now because she's worried she's going to wake up and there's no one around, you know, all the kids are mm. gone. And so she would tie, uh, she would get clothes and, and ropes and she would tie our limbs to her torso and she'll have three that way and three this way and she'll try to stay awake as long as she can. Wow. But if she po- falls asleep, someone will try to take us and the rope would be like our security oh, system. Jeez. And she would just, yeah. we'll all wake up, scream, fight the person, and we'll get back to our corner. It's, that was our yeah. security system. That's crazy. Now yeah. here, we just walk in the house, <laughs> beep, 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 <laughs> alarm set. <laughs> you know? That's... It's like a whole, that's just, it just feels like another life. Mm. An entire different, it would seem, from where you are now, it would seem so unrecognisable to you yeah. now and the way you live. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, people go, "You're talking shit. You didn't live that life." I'm like, "Well, mate, I did." Yeah. <laughs> Just we've come so far. I know. That it feels like it's not our life. I remember another time where you know the government uh, or this boarding school said to my mom, "Oh, give us the kids. We will look after them for you. You can visit them anytime, and we will house them, we will feed them, and they'll be with other kids that are in the same situation. Yeah. And then when you get a job and you get a house and yeah. all is well, you can take your kids." And mom's worked so hard to keep us together and yeah. we're on the street. So mom goes, okay, and trusts this government, uh, this boarding yeah. school. This boarding school takes us. And when we're in there, they're belting us. They're punishing us. They're making us sleep outside. We're getting beaten by ants and mosquitoes. And, you know, we're like, uh, if, you, if you, when you sleep outside, you get so scared that you piss your bed. 
Jesus. Remember, we're yeah. under 10 years yeah, old. Yeah, we yeah. piss our bed. And if you piss your bed, you get in trouble. And the trouble is you you uh, go to the office and the mistress uh, grabs uh, like a big stick and she whacks you with it or she makes you hold your ears, like put your hands uh, through your like your uh, through your legs and uh, hold your ears and you can't sit down. And, that's, and you stay, you sweat, so much pain. She makes you do that. And the final punishment was they made us... Uh, pee in a bucket and you drink your pee oh. as a form of punishment to never piss the bed Jeez. again. And I could tell you it tastes like Corona. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they made us do. I mean, did it help? <laughs> well, it helped me get used to drinking beer here. That's what they made us do. Jeez. And we explained this to mom. We're like, mom, we're getting tortured here. This place is yeah. no good. And mom was like, what? And she put yeah. in a complaint. She's like, I want my kids back. And they wouldn't give us back to her. That must... And, you know, they got money from yeah. the government, I'm assuming, for all the kids they had in there. And they just got six of us at one go. So that's good money. That must have been so hard for your mum to form any sort of trust with any institutions. Oh, Even know. when you moved here to Australia, I would imagine that would have been tough to form any sort of... I think she definitely trust. had trust issues, yeah. yes. Yes, um, but that moment there scarred her for life. You yeah. know, like I remember uh, she would come to visit us and they banned her from coming. So they're like, you can't come and visit. So, But mom didn't take no for an answer. She'll come. And I remember many times I'll be like, mom, come in. And she'll go, I can't. And she's just by the fence. And I'll go and talk to her and say hi. And it was like bars. So I'll just hug her through the bars. And I'll say, oh, you're going to come in? I'm going to go get the rest. She's like, I can't come in. And I can't tell you why, but I'm working on it. But if you can go get everyone, that'd be great. And I'd run and go, hey, guys, mom's here. And we'll all go and talk to mom and hang out with yeah. her. And you'll just see her. She's, she's very sad, you know. Yeah. But then she went out and she got a job and we managed to move into someone's ver- uh, veranda. Yeah. And she finally got us out. You know, she got people to help her write documents and stuff. And she got us out and we were living in this veranda. Um, but even then, it wasn't a house. It was just someone's veranda. So mom had to go to work, go to the market, try to sell tea to make money go work as a cleaner to make money and then come back and we had to look after ourselves. Um, you always just saw her, you know, every time she comes home, she just never knew if all of us are going to be there or yeah. something happened or someone God. got kidnapped, right? Because there's no one looking after yeah. us. Yeah. And, and you know, she was always under that stress. You could see it in her face. Now that we're in Australia, you know, like we, we look around and all my siblings, all my family, my mom, you know, she's happy, she's yeah. smiling we're all prospering instead of suffering. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the beauty of, uh, of Man, this country, that's the opportunities. A, that's a journey. Yeah. That is a journey. I mean, wow. <laughs> mm. That's why a lot of my comedy is like, yeah. I love my mum. If someone, if you tell another comic, that's, that's full on, man. what do you think of Joe White? <laughs> They'll be like, oh, that guy loves his mum. <laughs> you know? Every joke, I love my mum. I love my mum. You know, a lot, of, a lot of comedians here profess to have, you know, trauma, but... You know, probably nothing compares to the trauma they've had. Oh, mate. In their upbringings compared to yours. Yeah, look, we, uh, you know, we went through a lot. Um, And I'm not going to sit here and tell you, oh, it hasn't impacted us in any way, you know. Uh, Like PTSD is is true. It's serious. It's uh, we have, you know, traumas that that come, I guess, um, for a very long time growing up here, I was very quiet, you know, and a lot of that was because I felt that um, if I say the wrong thing, that they were going to send me back. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I suppressed a lot of my uh, 
like growing up, I suppressed a lot of the my opinions. You know, when I was making jokes, I was only at home with my siblings. Like, You're funny, but I'd go out there and I'd be this quiet kid, yeah. you know? Because a lot yeah. of that is like, man, if you say the wrong thing, not only are you going to get sent back, but all your siblings, your, your, your mom, and you're going yeah, to be homeless yeah. again in the streets of Sudan. Yeah. You yes. better shut up, you know? Yeah. And it took a while for me to understand, no, this is a different environment. We're safe now, you know? Like I can I can be myself. I can, I can yeah, be a happy child. And that took a while and yeah. Well, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I'm here too. I, I took a punt on you years ago during the Melbourne Comedy Festival and I've loved your work since. So Thanks, man. Thanks for being the first guest of 2024. Dude, what an honour. And I was I was a bit nervous today because usually I'm here with, with you know, another co-host. Yeah. So this is the first time I've actually done it solo. So Oh, man, you I couldn't tell. You, you, uh, uh, you did an amazing job. I couldn't tell that you were panicking or nervous. Because no. um, I mean, Harmon's usually here to ask. Pissed on the floor, but that's <laughs> all right. <laughs> it happens to all of us. Harmon's usually here to ask the sort of deeper philosophical questions, oh, right? Okay. So I've had to sort of um, adopt my senses to that a little bit Yeah. here. So it's 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 good. You nailed it. Yeah, thank you. Dude, you did an amazing job, and uh, you know, thanks for giving me the opportunity and the space to uh, share my story. That's always a no a you, pleasure. It was pleasure having you. And just to wrap it up, what words of wisdom do you live by? Um, don't take things so seriously. Um, and I think it's because you know a lot of people wait until they're on their deathbed before they go. Why was I mad at that person? Why yeah. Why did I care so much that this happened or that happened? Oh, you know, none of it matters. I'm about to check out, you know. Yeah. And it's if you just learnt before you got to your deathbed not to take things so seriously, you'll have a much happier life. And I think that's the goal for me is to spend as much as much of my time on this planet in a space where I'm laughing, I'm happy. It's not always going to be the case. Yeah. But I want to try to spend as much of my time in that frequency more so than being angry or bitter yeah. or vengeful, um, you know, or oh, everything is going to it's going to shits. It's not it's not great. Life's like I'd rather spend it in uh, being as much happy as possible, and that's also where I create from is that happy space, laughing, silly space, and um, yeah. So don't take things so seriously. Everything will be okay. That's my word of wisdom. It's great. Life is short. Life is short. Why spend it being unhappy? 100%. Um, this will be released next Wednesday. So do you have any gigs you want to promote? Uh, yeah, if you're in <coughs> Perth, um, I'll be doing the Perth Fringe Festival. Um, but otherwise, I'll be doing shows all around Australia. Um, yeah, Joe White Official on Instagram, Joe White underscore official, JoeWhiteComedian.com. Uh, on a website that will take you to all my links, but you can watch my videos and you can see all the stuff yeah. about my mom on there. <laughs> She's amazing. Shout out to Joe's mom. Yeah, mom is number one. Thank you so much, man. No worries, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here.